Well, welcome to our little study tonight again in 1 John. And uh, much has been said and still will be said in the book of 1 John regarding love. And so I did think tonight to start the study with a, a prayer. Uh, a prayer from uh, this book I have by Matthew Henry. It's entitled A Way to Pray. And basically what he's done is he's taken a whole bunch of scripture and, and on particular themes uh, and turned them into uh, prayers. And uh, just to pray tonight uh, for us and uh, our church uh, as we consider just uh, this book, but, but just the practical outworking of, of loving God and loving one another. So I want you to bow your heads, pray with me as we uh, come to God. Our Father, give us grace to love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, which is the first and greatest commandment. Let us set our love on you and delight ourselves always in you. For you have promised that, that then we shall have the desire of our hearts. Let your love be poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Let Jesus Christ be precious to us as he is to all that believe. Though we have never seen him, yet let us love him. Though we do not now see him, yet believing, let us rejoice with inexpressible and gloryful joy. Let Christ's love constrain us to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. Help us not to love the world or the things in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father cannot be in him. Let our desires focus on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and not on earthly things. And we do pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So having read that now, I do want to invite you to turn to 1 John. And uh, continuing this evening, really a second part of last uh, week's study. Uh, having looked at the first few verses, there really is a continuation. Couldn't do it all in one week. And so essentially I'm going to do a little bit of a, a, a revision uh, very quickly. And then we're going to extend... Uh, the study by continuing beyond verse 13. So chapter 4, and we'll read again from verse 7. So 1 John chapter 4, reading from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because, uh, because as 
uh, he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Lord, it is uh, important and uh, needed that we confess our failings uh, in this regard, uh, not loving as we ought to love, whether it be our love for you or whether it be love for our brothers, always needing to learn, always needing to grow, and Lord, so often being impatient uh, or intolerant. And, and so just asking tonight as we continue in your word that your word, Lord, would mold us and form us, that your spirit would convict and lead us. And may the study tonight be of some value, we pray, bringing fruit, Lord, and ultimately enabling people to see that you are God, uh, God in heaven, uh, majestic in your glory and awesome in power. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, there's no doubt that this passage is speaking about uh, God's command that Christians, that, that is us, we believers, selflessly love one another. Now, there is an immediate implication that I want to raise just uh, speaking of this passage. The fact that John is writing an entire letter, and it's not just this letter, but elsewhere in the Bible where he's speaking to the issue of, of believers loving one another. The, the, the implication is that there are groups of believers together. And so the command implies that true believers cannot live their lives in isolation of other Christians. So this idea that someone can sit in their lounge uh, and never engage, never be part of a local church uh, and, and just uh, have the input, as it were, via the internet, where, while that may have its place, as even tonight, it, I believe there is some, some value and it has its place, it, it can't lead, it must not lead to isolation. It mustn't lead to people just doing uh, their own thing. And so really, right at the beginning of the study, to be saying that each and every believer, everyone that... Uh, professes to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, needs to be part of a local community of believers. In fact, to put it even more directly, to be part of a local church. You need to know people. I need to know people. We need to be involved in the lives of other people, and they need to be involved in our lives. And, 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 and so that, so that we can love them, and so that they can love us. Now, we've already established in uh, this book, this letter that uh, John writes, that selfless loving most definitely goes beyond a natural response. That that natural response, you know, since you've been good to me, I'm going to be good to you. Kind of a you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back and so I'll be nice to you and I'll love you and you'll be nice to me and, and you love me. That, that, that is definitely not uh, the quality uh, standard of love that John is speaking about 
in this passage. We've already seen, we've already established, and we'll see some more tonight, that, that selfless love includes the unnatural response. It's, it's not natural. It's unnatural. The unnatural response, even though someone has been horrible to me, somebody has hurt me, unkind to me, I will still seek to be kind to that person. So it's not giving to people what they deserve. But in the same way, in the same way that God gives us what we don't deserve, so we in turn give to others. And, uh, well, the question is, and we did answer this last week, and I'm just going to run through it very quickly. Um, how on earth is it possible? How is it possible to have this unnatural type of love? And there are three reasons we touched on, and we're going to run through them very quickly. Um, Unfortunately, my TV operator or my computer operator has had to leave the room. So we're only going to get the points a little later uh, if she returns or when she returns. But let me give you these three reasons uh, in uh, these next couple of minutes. So Christians do have the capacity to love, even the unlovable. Why? Because of who God is. Love each other. We love each other because of of who God is. Verse 8 in our passage uh, says that explicitly because God is love. Verse 7, love comes from God. And so since God is the source of all love, it stands to reason, verse 7, that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So the very first reason has to do with the fact that we children of God ought to resemble our Father God. There ought to be a family likeness. Children resembling their Father. Which means, of course, if we go on in the passage in verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. There's no family connection. There's no, uh, uh, there's no life, as it were, from the Father. So by not loving as a professing Christian, we fail to manifest the nature of God. We fail to manifest the nature of Him whom, whom you claim to be your Father, Father God. So that's the first uh, reason, the first point. And I'm going to go on to the second point now. The God who is love and the God who has loved us and expressed His love and He's done so by sending His Son uh, to the earth. And, and so the second reason we love each other because of what God has given. And so the argument follows the logic. Since you got a gift from God, the gift of the Son, it's a gift that you did not deserve. Give to others what they don't deserve. Have a look at verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son as, a, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, or for the propitiation for our sins. Now, we do need to pause. And again, repeat that naturally speaking, it is true that it's not possible to love like this. But, but what we cannot ignore is that something ought to have happened in the life of a professing believer. It's not just joining a community because it happens to be the particular dominant culture in your context or in your family. No, something has happened to you to enable you to love 
in an unnatural way. And verse 9 of our passage, this is how, how God showed his love among us. He sent his only, one, one, his only son into the world. Notice what he says, that we might live through him. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Verse 11. In other words, there is the reality of being born again. There's the reality of becoming a new creature in Christ, where, where, the, where God is at work in changing our disposition uh, from being completely self-consumed, uh, where God is placed once again on the throne. Then thirdly, third reason why we can love one another, why we ought to love one another, it is because of what God is doing uh, now. And this is the point I want to elaborate on tonight. We're going to spend a bit of time exploring what the rest of the passage uh, says in this regard. So the point is, uh, God who loves, still loves, by continuing to do His work in and through His people in the year and now. God's love is seen by others around in the love that is shown by his children. So verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So in the present, now let's, let's just think about this passage. As if we go from the present and we go back to the time of the uh, Time that Jesus spent on earth. There's the reality of the incarnation, and we see something of the love of God uh, visibly displayed uh, in in the life of Jesus. And uh, now, now that He has been crucified, been raised from the dead, uh, ascended into heaven, but now He's at work in people, and and so that love that he displayed, that he revealed, is now revealed in some measure, in some measure. Of course, we're not perfect as Jesus is perfect, but in some measure ought to be displayed in, in our lives. And, and why is that? Because, because your love, because your love is his love, and the reason for that is, it's, it's been, that love has been passed on to you and to me by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and our love for one another is evidence of his indwelling uh, presence. Now that's that's where we need to think a little bit more. John digs a bit deeper, and uh, the two the two issues that we want to elaborate on from this passage, uh, the matter under consideration. Uh, number one, uh, it's 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 not a, a point in the outline, but just at this point in time to give you the two before I explore them separately. God's indwelling presence. Is there a way that you and I can confirm his indwelling presence in our life? In other words, how do you know? How do you know that, that he, in, he, he indwells you? The second issue we're going to look at is the fact of God's love made complete in us. Is there a way that you can know uh, that his love has been perfected or completed in your life? And so I want to deal with the first one now. Uh, it's my third, uh, first point under my third point, 3.1. How do you know, how do you know that God lives in you? Now, we know and guilty of it. We 
profess, we professing Christians and even other religious people lay claim to God living in them. Is it simply true because somebody says so? No, it can't be. It can't be. But then the, the next question is, is there a way of knowing? Is there a way of knowing? And, and in this next section from verse 13 to verse 16, we're going to see that uh, there's an affirmation that you can indeed know. I can know whether God dwells in me. Have a look at verse 13. We, we know that, he, that we live in him and he in us because he has given of his spirit. So you can know that you live in him and he in you because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, yes, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's just think a little bit about that. Why, why uh, is that in the first instance a consideration? Now let me try and illustrate. Some time ago, uh, when technology was unfolding and developing, I was given one of these Garmin uh, devices. And I was very proud of this Garmin device because now it was a very useful tool, especially in the kind of work that I do, in enabling me really with the push of a button uh, to be directed to designated places all over the city, all over the country, uh, very easy. Now, my point is this, no gift of the Garmin would be not having the access, the easy access in directions. The accurate directions came as a result of the gift of the garment. The gift comes first. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. The gift comes first. It then follows. It's followed by me knowing, being able to make my way around town efficiently. Now let's think about that and apply that to our spiritual lives. There was a time that you were, as an unbeliever, without direction. I'm using the word direction and, and, and especially if we go back, if we go down to verse 9, verse 9 of the passage, uh, just let me find it here quickly. Um, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So there was a time when we did not live. We were dead. And, and, and the Bible tells us this, the severity of this dead condition described elsewhere in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in transgressions and sins, dead to the love of God. Don't see it, don't feel it, don't experience it. Dead to the truth about Jesus and salvation. But because of the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion, the, the regenerating work of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit thereafter, changes all of that. The Holy Spirit made you live. And in living now, you're no longer dead, but you're alive and you have direction. And so John is able to say here in verse uh, 13, we know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. So naturally speaking, the person who does not have the work of the Spirit in their lives, they, remi they remain blind to the gospel. They, they remind, remain blind to, to the love of God. And so they will dig their heels in, in, in defending and perpetuating a self-consuming, self-centered and sinful preoccupation in their lives. So apart from God's gift, we would all remain dead 
and lost. But because of the gift, now remember this is the reason that we can know the indwelling of, of God. As a result of God's gift and, and His presence, things change. And now we begin to perceive and to desire not only the truth of God, but God Himself. Rebellious wills are moved to turn from sin to the Savior. There's a willingness of, of repentance, a continual turning from sin to faith in Jesus. Whereas the natural and predictable uh, does not do that. How do you know God lives in you? The question must be, is have you received the Holy Spirit? Is the evidence of the life of God in you? Now the passage goes on. And it helps us answer that question because John now moves on to what I want to call two bits of evidence, two bits of essential evidence that, that should be obvious, it should be evident in the life of somebody who now lives in Christ. These together, and it is important that we see them together, provide the proof of confirming the presence of God in your life. So what, what is the first one? I've called it Exhibit 1. And it's the ability to believe. If we go back in our passage, uh, the natural person, the unbeliever, uh, does not believe. He is not willing to confess Jesus Christ. Back in verse 2 and 3. Whereas in verse 15, we're told if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Think about the apostles, those unique number of men who witnessed and walked and saw all that Jesus did and taught. They heard his teaching, they witnessed his baptism, they heard the declaration from heaven, uh, from the Father, this is uh, my beloved Son. Uh, they watched him at work, uh, they saw when he was betrayed, they, they witnessed the crucifixion, they they looked on when they saw his dead body taken from the cross. They spoke to him after the resurrection. They watched him ascend back into heaven. I'm saying all of that because they believed. And then, and then they went on to testify to, to others what had been accomplished. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And the world there is not geography, it's not the entire population. It's, it's come to save people who are in the world that are lost in sin. As a result of them testifying, other believers then, and still other believers after them, down through the ages, also believe. And so the, the content of, of, of that which tells us what Jesus did and taught, in other words, we would call that doctrine or teaching or biblical content, cannot be minimized because the ability to believe requires something to believe. And not anything to believe, but that which the apostles saw and testify to. So the urgent need of the world was to be rescued from sin and Satan. And so the Father loved the world. He sent His Son to be the Savior. 
And so the, the question, whether you have the Spirit of God living in you, is do you have the ability to believe that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and that needs to be personalized, that, that He sent the Savior to be your Savior, to be your Redeemer. And so can you with John, in response to the body of gospel truth, affirm that you know and you rely on the love of God for us. So do you have the ability to believe uh, the death, the resurrection, uh, that which surrounds all of that truth about Jesus and the reason for his coming, the accomplishment of redemption uh, that the Spirit of God has applied down through the ages. But there's a second exhibit, and it's the ability to love. Now we have seen earlier on uh, that in, from verse 7 to verse 12, uh, the duty of all Christians is, is to love. Now, now, now it goes beyond duty to actually becoming the evidence of the Spirit's activity. Have a look at verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So again, asking the question, remember what we're trying to establish is, do you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you? Do you live in God and, and God in you? A yes answer means that you are willing to show selfless love to others in the church, especially speaking about the relationships in the context of the body. A yes means that you're prepared to be kind that you're prepared to be gracious to those who have been unkind or perhaps even horrible to you. And so belief and love, very important that we see this, are not conditions of the indwelling. So in other words, the Spirit does not come because we first believe or we first love. No, no, no. But there are tests or evidence of it. When the Spirit of God lives in us, it is an indication, the, the, uh, our believing and our loving is an indication that He is present. By this we know that we live in Him, not, or, uh, not by this we live in Him, verse 13. So here's a, an important uh, consideration. Important to emphasize that it is both. Belief and love together that form the evidence of the Spirit of God in you. There have been and, and there are people who are unusually loving, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't accept the fact that he came as an atoning sacrifice. Then they're not believers. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them. Must be both. So one could say that the other way as well. Some people have accurate doctrinal definition, but there's an absolute and obvious absence of love. Well, the Holy Spirit not present in their lives. Well, the next prong or the next question is, how is God's love perfected in your life? So what, what, what does this phrase mean? The love of God perfected in you means that you as a believer become more and more the picture of the love of God in the world around you. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to me. 
The way you relate to others is then an example of the selfless love of God, evidence that this love has been perfected. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So this topic is developed a little bit further down to verse 21 from verse 17. In this elaboration of his love made complete and in us, the emphasis moves to our love from, or no, to our love for God and one another. So our love for God and our love for one another has its source in God and it's brought to completion by Him. It's made complete. In other words, it matures as, as, as we live on in the Christian life, as we grow in maturity, more and more of, of the picture of God is seen in us in the way that we love. And then there's the benefit that we are told of in this passage. There are two consequences of this uh, love being perfected. Uh, in uh, in us that John raises. And the one is confidence. And what, what kind of confidence or what is the confidence in? Verse 17. In this way love is made complete among you so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Now judgment is a scary prospect. Frightening to be completely exposed before God. Uh, him knowing all things, our thoughts, our actions, our motives. And uh, judgment would bring about shame. And certainly we would fear judgment. But because of the love of God in Christ, we've been rescued from sin and condemnation. And so more we see the depth and the height and the width and the length of the love of Christ in rescuing us from judgment the more you will appreciate the grace and acceptance by God and the more confident you will be regarding judgment. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see the benefit? So the, the evidence being there, the exhibits or the exhibit of, of love being perfected or matured. And then John says there's no fear in love. There's no need to be scared of judgment. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not made, is not made perfect in love. And then secondly, the second benefit of this um, maturing, uh, perfecting, or love being perfected, is that the obvious benefit of we would love, we'd have love for others more and more. And so as love finds its wholeness or maturity, we're going to be loving people more and more. So, so the implication, of course, is if that's not happening, either we're remaining immature as believers, we're isolated and we're really not concerned about others, or there's no true conversion in the first instance. And the perfection of love, we know, comes with a mindset. It knows we love because he first loved us. There are no extenuating circumstances listed in this passage or excuses. Uh, the reason being that it's not possible to say you love God and hate your brother. It's a challenge. We ought to think about that. And I'll say that again. It's not possible to say you love God and yet hate your brother. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God 
and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. A challenge to any one of us and just the, the life that we live and express within the community of faith, within the local church. Well, let me conclude. Well, there's no doubt as believers that we cannot duck and dive this issue of selfless love, the need that we need to selflessly love one another, in spite of us having these warts and pimples. But the emphasis in this passage, the remainder of this passage that we've looked on today, is the proof that which is evident in the lives of those who profess to be Christians. And I hope tonight you've been encouraged that there's a greater assurance that you've been able to confirm God's indwelling presence in your life, recognizing the evidence of the gift of the Spirit, remember, in your ability to love and your ability to believe. Growing confidence, knowing there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and building more and more relationships, accepting more and more people where previously you did not. So it's something that we ought to be praying for and, and certainly examining our hearts in as well. So before I pray, just if we could put up the questions there, Jay. So those studies who are using this material, there are some questions. And uh, you can take a look at those and consider those together. And can I remind you to use the text of the passage uh, be careful of just offering opinions that are not founded or grounded or emerge out of the text that we have considered this evening lord we do pray that you would more and more be at work in us lord the presence of your spirit being evident in growing us growing in conviction and belief in all that you said and did that which you accomplished in redemption, and even that which you revealed about yourself. And Lord, also the evidence of us uh, loving each other more evidently, we pray. Have your hand upon us, Lord, as a church, and may we indeed be known as a people who love one another. And in this, that people would see that there is a God in heaven, that you are worthy to be glorified. And so we commend ourselves to you. We pray for our church uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for uh, watching this uh, uh, video and trust you have a blessed week further.